Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who likes to spend my holiday time in Japan and in my spare time, I want to understand the Japanese technology and innovation ecosystem. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today I have Tim Romero, host of Disrupting Japan podcast. Welcome, Tim. And it's great to have you here for the first time on our podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. I always want to let people know that our podcast are actually born on the same day and date. I know. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I was made aware of your podcast through Graham Brown, who actually quickly connected us on it. It's been great to have you here. So I want to start to get to understand what you have done and also get to know you better. How do you start your career? Well, you know, it depends on when you call it starting so I've been in Japan for, wow, almost 30 years now altogether. But I, I first came to Japan as a professional musician. Yeah, back in 1988, which was a crazy time to be in Japan. My music career did, didn't really work out. I had a lot of fun, but you know, it's a great hobby, but a terrible career. My real career, I guess, started in the 90s. I mean, I've been programming computers since I was 11. And in 97, I was in Japan. I thought this internet thing sounded interesting. So I quit my job, started uh, my first company, uh, sold that a few years later. Then, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. I did that a few more times. So I've been starting companies in Japan and working with startups here for the last 20 years or so. And I think there is something that I also miss in your bio. You're also currently the chief technology officer for Tepco Ventures. What do you do there? Well, about two years ago, so I'm, I'm relatively new to energy. And about two years ago, TEPCO, which is Japan's largest electric utility, asked me to help them set up their innovation system and their investment program. It was too good an offer to pass up. And so what I do there is work with, at the moment, mostly foreign energy companies want to come into the Japanese market. And there's a lot of renewable energy, a lot of just brand new technology in it. And we're also working with Japanese startups, trying to get more active Japanese participation in the energy and energy adjacent markets. So it's everything from like solar energy to electric vehicles to demand response. It's a fascinating time to be in the industry right now. And so you actually work with startups mainly in the energy space, or is it more towards the renewable energy space then? Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get TEPCO and the utilities around the world, everyone's facing the the same problem. So the energy industry has been pretty much the same for the past 100 years or so. And over the last 15 to 20 years, there's been this global wave of deregulation and privatization. And so all of the energy utilities are scrambling for new business models. Because, you know, when, when your market share is at 100%, there's only one direction it can go, right? You can only lose market share. And so I'm trying to get them to think a little more broadly about what the energy industry is that it's not just generation and transmission and billing, that things like electric vehicles, indoor agriculture, a lot of what people think of as environmental issues are actually energy projects. You have a very interesting career, right? You started as a musician and then you get into technology and then now you're actually working with startups to try to get into the energy sector. So I want to ask you, what are the most interesting lessons in your career that you can share with my audience? Wow. You know, I, I always hesitate to give advice, but I'll, I'll tell you what kind of worked for me and what I've always been just absolutely certain about. You know, focus on doing something that is long-term interesting. And, and what I mean by that is there every day is not going to be interesting. There are days 
you know, even now where they're rough and things aren't going the way you expect and you're working long hours and they're just terrible that particular day. But when you view it in terms of months or years, you're doing something that really is meaningful and you want to do. And so looking from outside, it looks like I've had this utterly bizarre, crazy career. I was a writer for a while in there as well before I took up podcasting. And But, you know, internally, it is very clear one step always led very clearly to the next. That's almost like getting into a flywheel if- Effect, right your, your career is actually like a flywheel exactly but and actually you know but i want to distinguish it because there, there's this what i think is the worst advice given to startup founders everywhere is uh follow your passion that's terrible terrible advice so i mean i was a professional musician for a number of years i was surrounded by people who were incredibly passionate about what they did but most of them failed i mean i my music career failed so pa- passion's not enough. I think there's this weird myth that so we we look at all these successful people and we say, well, what what made you so successful? And they'll say, well, it was I was passionate about what I was doing, and so we think that passion leads to success. But I I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's when you start doing something that's worthwhile and people start using what you're building or or listening to the podcast that you're making, you become kind of inspired and you become passionate about what you're doing. So in a sense, success leads to passion. It, it's not that passion leads to the success. We ha- we have a backwards. If you do something that like really adds value that you enjoy doing, like long-term enjoy doing, yeah, you'll probably end up in a pretty good place. You are the host of Disrupting Japan podcast. I've listened to it and I actually got a much better understanding of the Japan tech and entrepreneurial ecosystem. So I want to ask you, what is the team of your podcast and who are the intended audience? Well, the team, it's pretty much me. It's very much a one-man show. I did it professionally for about a year. But right now it's non-commercial again. I started the show just, I never imagined it would have more than a hundred listeners or so. It was just me talking with some of my Japanese startup founder friends about what it's like to run a startup. You know, not, not so much the particular show, but you know, what it's like to sell to big companies as a little startup and sometimes how they manage to convince their wife to let them quit this big safe job and start this crazy side project. You know, what it's like to be an innovator in a culture that really, really prizes conformity. And we've kept that theme for the past five years as the show's grown. I've read this very interesting article about how you built your podcasting empire, you call it. <laughs> yeah, somewhat sarcastically. <laughs> it's also being thoughtful as well. I, I really want to know because I'm also a fellow podcaster. I'm always trying to understand what how my other fellow podcasters are doing within the Asia ecosystem. What are the most interesting parts of that journey that you can talk about? I think probably the most important, well, I'll, I'll give you two, but they're both related to to making money from podcasting. I was podcasting for about, I guess about three years, almost three years when the startup I was working on blew up kind of underneath me. I had no better options at the time. So I figured, okay, well, let's do podcasting professionally. And I had about 3,500 listeners at that point. So what I did is, I mean, if you go and you look at the CPM rates, you know, normal podcast advertising, you get like $20 per thousand listeners, which is nothing. I mean, if you've got millions of listeners, that adds up, but 3,000. Now, the way I made it work was going out and finding sponsors, figuring out who my audience was. And Disrupting Japan audience was startup founders, people working at startups, VCs, 
people interested in Japanese innovation. And this, this was a unique and very valuable audience. You know, I made a list of 50 companies I figured really, really wanted to reach that audience. And I went and pitched in PowerPoint and I had to explain, well, what is podcasting and who the hell are you and what is disrupting Japan? And I ended up with a complete advertising roster that was paying, you know, well above, I mean, ridiculously above market rates because they wanted to reach that audience. I was making between $8,000 and $9,000 a month podcasting when I was doing it pro. But the problem is, I mean, if you want to do that, you, you can make a living at it. You can make a good living. But, you know, I was spending 70% of my time doing ad sales and metrics and working with sponsors and writing ad copy and only 30% of my time podcasting. And I, I don't really enjoy ad sales. I guess I'm pretty good at it, but I, I don't enjoy it. So I eventually moved away from that and took J Disrupting Japan non-commercial again. And I think it's still open because the business model for podcasting is changing. And of course, this year, there's a lot of movement with Spotify's acquisition of Gimlet. Today, I want to actually talk to you about something that I'm really interested in because I visit Japan every year for inspiration, going to Tokyo, Kyoto, and Osaka. I want to talk to you about the Japanese entrepreneurial technology ecosystem. And I think you have been talking to the startup founders, the corporations, and all the VCs who are involved in that ecosystem. So just to start that conversation, can you give an overview of the Japanese entrepreneurial technology and innovation ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm always amazed at how little attention Japan gets internationally for startups and innovation here. It always depends what you compare it to. If you were comparing Tokyo to, say, San Francisco, well, you know, no, Tokyo is way behind. But I, I'd say... I mean, I travel a lot and I talk to startups in a lot of countries, and I'd say Tokyo is pretty much in the same state as somewhere like Berlin or London. So there's a tremendous amount of innovation here. I was talking to James Riney, who runs Coral Capital, which is a seed or pre-seed stage investing venture capitalist. And he was telling me they get about 300 submissions per month of companies looking for funding. There's a tremendous supply here. If you're looking for particular areas of innovation, I'd say the elder care is really, no one's quite figured it out. I haven't seen anything that's like the next billion dollar company coming out of this, but looking at the demographic trends all over the world, World. Europe is facing the same demographic problems that Japan is, and America will probably face them like 10 years later than Europe. And Japan will have like 10 years to itself in this market to figure out what really works and what doesn't. So I think there's going to be a big breakthrough there. Uh, there's incredible things going on in robotics and IoT. It's a unique market, and I think the language barrier, it prevents a lot of interesting information from getting out of Japan, but it also, companies tend to come into Japan later. So Japan develops a very unique ecosystem in terms of startups here. I remember when I was growing up in the 80s and Japan was the technology superpower in Asia. I mean, very similar to today, what's happening with China. I mean, you remember the days of Sony, the Walkman, the innovation, and then there is robotics. And part of the reason why I visit Japan every year is because I wanted to look at human interface design, how to design of thinking about products, part of the ecosystem. So one question I really have and I think probably an insider like yourself would know much better. What are the common misconceptions about the Japanese ecosystem? Well, I'd say the biggest misconception is that it's that it doesn't exist. People just don't know about it or that it's not innovative. It's, it's interesting. I, I feel like, so there, there used to actually be more information about Japanese startups coming out of Japan than there is today. 
Although the ecosystem itself is much, much larger than today than it was 10 years ago. I think it's just that Japan hasn't grown as quickly as China or Singapore, so that's where the attention is focused. But there's an incredible amount going on here. And I think that there is also some technologies in Japan which are really important. The Japanese still holds a lot of patterns on, for example, miniaturization of electronics, cars, and also robotics as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that a, a large amount of the innovation that's going to be coming out of Japan, particularly in areas like that, are not going to be coming out of startups, but are going to be coming out of uh, mid-sized companies that are retooling. So one unique aspect of the Japanese economy is that, you know, from the post-war period until about... 2000, the vast majority of Japanese manufacturing companies were, they only existed in the supply chain of one particular major manufacturer. You might have been a company that only so sold to Toyota or you only sold to Mitsubishi. And these companies didn't have to have a marketing function or a sales function. They were, they were almost like subsidiaries. That's been changing as, you know, a lot of manufacturing in Japan has moved overseas. Japanese manufacturers are more anxious to buy best of breed. And so a lot of these mid-sized manufacturers are, well, a lot of them are going out of business, but a lot of them are retooling. And these companies are, you know, 50 to 150 people, which are not huge. And they can take advantage of the same types of technologies and the same types of global marketing techniques that any startup can. We're starting to see some of them have an impact in the global market markets. Hoso is an example of that in Kyoto. It's a 300-year-old company that makes kimono silks, but they've kind of reinvented themselves. The new CEO, who I think is like the 13th generation CEO, has said he's going to spend 20% of his earnings on new innovation projects. And they've worked with uh, Panasonic on like new UIs that are very tactile. They've worked with Chanel and these global brands on new fabrics, new interior designs. But what he said was most interesting is that even you know, aside from the new business and the new revenues these new projects are getting, suddenly a a lot of young people are interested in this old traditional craft. They're seeing the company as being innovative and he's attracting a new generation of artists and innovators. And I, I think we're going to see that pattern play out in a lot of the mid-sized companies here. And it, it's uniquely Japanese. That's interesting because the small, medium business ecosystem, I think the only other country I could think of that is actually having that kind of growth is Taiwan, where it's not actually the startup side that's actually booming. It's actually the mid-sized companies that actually do most of the tooling and manufacturing. And now they're going into the upper stream of the economy against the low cost in China. Yeah, that sounds like a very similar situation. I, I think there's something very interesting about the Japanese which I always find it fascinating. Like if I watch The Kingdom of Like and Madness, which is depicts Hayao Miyazaki or, you know, the sushi story with Jiro, I find that Japanese entrepreneurs tend to only use a selected set of suppliers. And you are saying that there's a mind shift going out of that model. And the other thing I like about the Japanese system, which I like a lot, is the Shokunin model, which is the craftsman view of improving on the product over and over again. After all, the Japanese were the ones who invented the startup model. As Eric Ries always say, it was from Toyota's lean manufacturing. In your view, what are the strengths and weaknesses of that ecosystem against probably the rest of the world? I think that uh, monotsukuri and this obsession with quality is actually one of Japan's great
greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses. On the strength side, it, it is utterly amazing what, you know, the quality that some of these small companies are willing to, are able to produce. On the downside, when you're really this focused on quality, it can be very hard to, you know, rapidly iterate and to pivot. And sometimes the best thing is just to get something out there in front of the customer. And in a lot of the Japanese startups I work with, and, and even in my large corporate clients, this fear of releasing something that's not perfect is really hard to get over. The, w- the way I see that improving here, is that when you define these kind of iterations not as a product, but as part of a process so that the customer feedback is just feedback, it's not failure. The startups are more willing to take those kind of chances. But the fact is Japanese consumers and businesses as well are very, very intolerant of flaws and problems in products, much less so than in the US. Yeah, and if you look at how like crowdfunding is evolving here, it, it exists and it's growing steadily but it's not that big. And the crowdfunding founders who've come on the show have all said, you know, they spend a lot of time building up that relationship with the sponsors, with the backers, and explaining to them what the process is so that they don't view this as a as a product. And so at the moment, crowdfunding in Japan is more of a marketing function than, than a fundraising function. For that reason, just the Consumers are so demanding. But, you know, that said, if you can satisfy the Japanese consumer in terms of quality, you're, you're pretty much set globally. You know, that's why I always tell people Apple is more like a Japanese company than an American company. Yeah, in that way, I think so. Yeah, just insane demand, engineering demands. I want to ask, what are the core technologies that is currently associated with Japan? I mean, I know robotics. I know gaming. I think these are like, the industries that typically when you think of Japan, you think about that. Sometimes I would think of like very beautiful products, either from UG or even good fabric from fast retailing, which is Uniqlo. But are there any other like technologies that within this ecosystem is now booming or is in this phase of actually building up towards? Well, actually, let's take a quick look at robotics and gaming because the exact same thing happened in both of those industries in Japan. And that's Japan, when gaming and when robotics were based on hardware, Japan was kind of the unquestionable world leader. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, gaming shifted away from consoles. It's been shifting away ever since. And the Japanese gaming companies have had trouble catching up because they're not great software developers. And the same thing happened with robotics. Is robotics, particularly industrial robotics, had always been a question of hardware. And in the last 10 years, it's shifted from a hardware focus to a software focus. And we've seen companies like Boston Dynamics and Chinese companies jump in front, jump ahead of some of the Japanese firms. Now, Japan, certainly on the robotics side, is responding by developing a lot of software expertise. But that that shift, I think, caught a lot of Japanese companies kind of unaware. One of the most important shifts in Japanese startups and Japanese innovation over the last 20 years has been the realization that software is incredibly important, which I know sounds obvious, but really until about 2000, software development was not really considered a particularly respected profession. It was kind of like a blue collar job. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. And hardware engineering was always incredibly well respected, but not software. But after 2000, the large companies started to see a real brain drain as these talented software engineers left the firms and started starting their own startups. And now, 
Japanese companies are kind of real, realizing that, wait a minute, we, we need these people. We need software. We, we need talented software engineers. The salaries have gone up. The respect for the profession has gone up. And Japan is catching up in its software development efforts. I want to know what startups now, in your opinion, are interesting on innovation. I mean, let's go within the categories like robotics. I'd say, man, robotics is so wide. I, I'd say industrial robotics is really fascinating. Muzin is one of my favorite startups in Japan. I think they're going to be the next, next unicorn. There are a lot of really clever IoT companies out there. I see a lot more variation in Japan than I do in, in Singapore, or even in San Francisco. The, the challenge with IoT, though, it's really easy to get your first hundred or maybe your first thousand users, but to take a device from being, you know, manufacturing, say, 3,000 units to manufacturing a million units, it's a huge step that most companies can't take. And you, you can't take that with venture capital. So I think one of the interesting things going on now is there are a lot of partnerships between Japan's consumer electronic manufacturers and some of the more innovative IoT startups. That might be a path to get these innovative IoT products to a global market. Space is the other one that I'm pretty interested. I've seen some Japanese entrepreneurs who are now tackling space. One of my favorite is Noble, who's doing AstroScale. AstroScale. Yeah, he was on the show a few months ago. I think it's amazing. I guess you would say like an old style startup founder where I'm, I'm focused on like operations. And it's hard to wrap my head around the space startups. I've had four or five aerospace startups on the show over the last few years years, including Nobu, who's working on a way to deorbit satellites, get space junk out of orbit. Another firm, uh, iSpace, that's trying to basically colonize the moon and make a lunar ecosystem. And these guys have amazing dreams and they're moving forward on it. They've got funding for it. But it, it's something like that. It's hard to know how much of it really is going to, to end up working. I mean, there, there's no way to know. I mean, they're breaking new ground. So yeah, there's some amazing stuff going on in aerospace in Japan. How about consumer internet? There are a lot of big leaps because we see Macari. We have seen, if you want to go back 10 years, it would be Rakuten. And there are a lot of these companies that are now showing up like smart news. Where do you see them being? Yeah, consumer internet, it, it is something that they're innovative companies, but, but globally, there are only so many business models. So Mercari, great team, right place, right time. They were Japan's first unicorn. There are a lot of of gaming companies, a lot of like the news aggregation firms, but but honestly, a lot of this tends to be very local. It's every country I go to will have a different set of news aggregators. Now, maybe maybe that is something unique to local markets that make it hard to achieve kind of global dominance. Maybe it's the relationships with the the advertisers that requires you know local know-how. There's a lot of those, but I, I think you'll find a lot of those type of startups in every ecosystem. So news picks, smart news, Amoeba, there, there's a number of good companies there. When we think of Japan, we often think about the big conglomerates. I mean, Sony, Toyota, Toshiba, or even the Yamato Group, which is very well known for logistics, Tepco for energy, Rakuten, fast retailing, or everyone else knows as Uniqlo, and of course, the most famous of all, SoftBank. How are these corporations viewed within the ecosystem itself? It's almost like we, we see them as two distinctive entities all the time, but do they really interact? They do. At least they try to. So I think one of the biggest changes the startup ecosystem I've seen over the last 20 years is that 
back in 1998, if I wanted to sell to Mitsubishi or Fujitsu or Honda, I would have been pushed down through three or four levels of subcontractors. And now, I mean, almost every major company in Japan has a special office whose mission is to reach out to startups and to find pilot projects and to find ways of collaboration. This is fantastic. Now, I do think that the large companies in Japan are going to play a much more important role than, say, the large companies in the U.S., simply because the brand value seems to carry a lot more weight in Japan, and the Japanese, the large Japanese conglomerates control a lot more of the distribution channels for physical goods and also the advertising and media channels for digital goods. So it's much harder for a Japanese startup to kind of challenge the status quo on their own than it is for a startup in the United States to do so. Do you see them actually going out of Japan? Because one thing it seems to me that most of the startups have in Japan seems to be stuck within their ecosystem, but they haven't really gone further out. I mean, if you think of China these days, there's ByteDance. If you think of India, there's Oyo Rooms, where they actually go into other geographies. Well, no, I, th I do. I do. I think quite a few of them, particularly most Japanese startups, once they've raised about $10 million, they've got a global expansion plan as part of that. Now, the reason you might not see them is that most of the Japanese startups are moving into Southeast Asia, maybe Australia, maybe Europe, simply because, you know, going into the U.S. market requires so much capital to compete against, you know, well-funded U.S. startups that that's usually not the best first step. But I'd say, you know, almost all of the larger startups who've been on the show are in other markets besides Japan. And several have, have entered the U.S. market, but most of the U.S. market entry have not gone particularly well for the Japanese startups simply because they can't raise that kind of capital yet. That comes to the money part, right? How about the venture capital in the ecosystem? I was told a few years ago that most Japanese startups usually go public after their Series B funding. Is that changing with a new breed of companies now? Because they also see the world with unicorns. Yeah, absolutely. I think Mercari sort of really changed that mindset. I don't have the numbers from last year, but a few years ago, the majority of companies that listed in Japan had a total market cap of less than $20 million. So not, not that they, they raised $20 million, that the value of the company was only $20 million. And, you know, that's a Series B. What's happening now is there are larger funds being raised. And, you know, if you raise a $200 million fund, you have to write larger checks, which means you need later stage growth companies. I've talked with several of the late stage growth well, large growth startups like Tarada Son of Sansan, who was really clear in, you know, that he had to push back against his investors. And he was saying, look, we, you know, our plan is to keep growing as a private company. We'll IPO when we are ready. Daisuke from Free is in a similar situation where he's made it clear to his investors that he will only IPO when he can IPO in the, the first section of the Tokyo Stock Exchange alongside Toyota and Mitsubishi. And the investors are accepting that. They seem to be happy with that. So that, that attitude is changing. It's changing pretty fast. Hmm. So how do you see this new breed of Japanese startups and the evolution of their advancement in technology? I remember during our lunch in Japan, where we met, you have this view about Japan's technology evolution goes in cycles. And you think that they are now at the cycle of uh, developing that core competency before they break out again. Am I right to say that? I, I think so. Uh, it's not so much the technology, though. It's more of... Um 
I don't know, it's, it's, it's more of just like the direction or the decision. Um, so if you look at like what happened in Japan during the Meiji Restoration in the late 1800s, just Japan spent 10 years or so looking outward, trying to figure out what was the best of breed around the world. Then they brought it all home and, and kind of reinvented Japan. After World War II, Japan went through very much the same process and for 10 or 15 years looked outward, found the best, what they considered to be the best manufacturing processes, the best QA processes, and then brought that back internally. And, and not just industrial, also like socially, education system, things like that. And I, I think that uh, right now, Japan's at a stage where the last 10 years has been really outward focusing, looking what's happening in Silicon Valley. And now it's really feeling more like it's much more inward looking. And the only, the only like solid evidence I have of this, and I admit this is, this is pretty unscientific, but I, I, I play this game where, um, so as you can imagine, I go to a lot of startup events and innovation events in Japan. Uh, most of them are in Japanese, of course. And for the last eight, nine years, I've been counting the times speakers say San Francisco or Silicon Valley and counting the number of times people say Tokyo or Japan. And six years ago, it was three to one. Uh, in favor of San Francisco. So everyone was talking about San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and no one was talking about Japan, in Japan. And now, I mean, it hasn't quite flipped, but there are far more people talking about what's happening in Japan and what's happening in Tokyo than they are talking about Silicon Valley. Um, and in fact, the more informed someone is, and the more authoritative someone is, the less likely they are to talk about what's happening in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, and the more likely they are to talk about what's really going on in Japan. Uh, and I, I think that that kind of shows that, you know, there's a, a new model that, that's being built here, and it's not going to look like it does in Silicon Valley. And that, that's fine. Every country, every community needs to play to its own strength. And I, I think what's coming out of Japan is going to look quite different. Where do you think the Japanese technology ecosystem would be in the next two, three years? I think we're going to see Japan catch up a little more on the software engineering. In three, four years, they're probably still not going to be at the level of the US or some of the stuff that's coming out of China, but they're still going to go at, move ahead with that. I think the importance of university innovation programs and laboratories is going to really come into its own in the next five to 10 years here. There's a lot of VC money that's being funneled through university innovation labs, particularly in things like uh, life sciences, where the venture capital community in Japan has never really been supportive of life sciences. It's, it's a hard thing to invest in. But the university labs now are making long-term, multi-decade bets on it. So I think that is an area that I think we're going to see some surprises in in the next five years. I wouldn't be surprised because in the past few years, I think nobody actually looks at the Nobel Prize. I mean, there are a significant amount of Japanese scientists involved, particularly in stem cell research, you know that. Yeah, yeah. But the hard thing, and I mean, I understand why life sciences are so hard to invest in. I mean, if you're looking at like B2B SaaS software, you're like, okay, well, what does it do and what's your traction? It's pretty easy 
easy to get a sense of, do these guys have a path to success? You'll see results in the next year or so. Life sciences, you really, really have to be an expert to even understand the value proposition. And you're making investments that are going to take 10 years before you know if you're on the right track or not. It's a really important but very specialized area of venture capital. But I think that there will be that expertise that will eventually arise, right? I mean, robotics in the past was also arise because of manufacturing, Japanese quality manufacturing. They, they moved towards that miniaturization. They are still in the forefront of those fields. I mean, I, I know of Chinese companies that are dying to acquire these Japanese competencies because they are also trying to move upstream in the manufacturing side. Yeah. Again, this is one area where Japan is sort of moving ahead on the on the software side. They're regaining their number one seat. So the big two years ago, JD made a large, fully automated warehouse where robots unloaded the trucks, they stocked the items, they picked the items, they packaged the items up, they stamped labels on them, and they put them in bags for shipping. There are no humans involved in the in the entire warehouse. And uh, it was a Japanese company that did all of the, the picking and uh, sorting software. Uh, that was Mujin again. So, I mean, there, there, there's some really cool stuff happening here. I, I totally agree because I, I come to Japan every year and I'm still f discovering that I found a lot more inspiration just by staying here for a week. Yeah, it astounds me. People ask me about disrupting Japan. I release an episode uh, twice a month. They're saying, well, aren't you going to, don't you worry about running out of, of startups to interview? And I'm like, good Lord, no, I, I could do three shows a week if I had the time to put it together. <laughs> It's, yeah, it, it's just like endless the amount of innovation coming out of Japan. And I think that this conversation is just the start and not the last. So Tim, I'm definitely getting you back on the show because we are only touching the surface. I want to go deeper at some point on certain topics with you as well on this. Let's do that. I look forward to it. Tim, many thanks for coming on the show. And I really thank you for having this conversation because I was really looking for someone who can tell me more about Japan. So in closing, I have two questions. My first one, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything that recently made an impact to your work and personal life? On the work life, I, I think I'll give you two. One that's relatively new and one that's really old. One that's relatively new is Zero to One, which, which was... A book I was expecting to read because I, I felt almost obligated to read it, but it, it just gave me a genuinely good perspective of looking at how to value startups and what's important. Another very old book that I reread recently was Guerrilla Marketing, which I think was written in the 80s, and it's about using marketing techniques that other people aren't using. And the examples in the book are all very analog. They're, they're stickers and flyers and things. But it was just a refreshing way of forcing me to rethink about the way I'm marketing various projects to kind of give me some brainstorming material for some of the, the startups I advise. Broadly, I would just throw in a recommendation. I've only read the book in Chinese and the translated book is only available in Chinese. And that is uh, Tadashi Yanai, the founder of Uniqlo, One Win, Nine Defeats. And I think it's a great book. I don't know why it's not translated to English yet. So my final question to you, how do my audience find you? Well, the easiest way is to check out disruptingjapan.com. You can find it on iTunes or at the website or like any of the social media places. But uh, please check out the podcast. I mean, if you're interested in Japanese innovation and startups, I think you'll really enjoy the show. 
And definitely you can find me at Bernard Leung. And this show is co-produced by Carol In and myself. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Himalaya. And of course, tweet to us your feedback and give us a five star on iTunes for Discovery and a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And of course, most importantly, tweet me your feedback. Yes, the live show is confirmed. It's probably going to be on the 5th of September, just one, two days after our fifth birthday. And it's likely going to be we work Suntech. I'm going to be putting out more details to come up. And Tim, many thanks for coming on the show and we'll speak again soon. My pleasure. It was a blast.